0: You may have heard of the epic poem, the the classic work, The Divine Comedy, in which a poet imagines a tour of the afterlife. This was in the 14th century, this Italian poet named Dante Alighieri, he had the bravado to suggest that numerous Roman Catholic popes would find themselves in hell. To give you just one example, As he's touring hell, he he reaches the eighth circle of hell, almost all the way to the bottom of this pit. And it's the place where people are punished for the sin of fraud. And there's a special place in this region for those guilty of a subset of fraud, a particular sin called simony, which is the sin of using your position in the church for personal financial gain. And in this place, uh, Dante finds it's filled with with stone tubes shaped like baptismal fonts from medieval churches. And those who were guilty of simony in their lives, their their, their souls, that's called their shades, are stuffed into these stone tubes, these baptismal fonts. They're stuffed into them upside down with their feet set on fire and sticking out. The idea is, oh, you like your baptism, huh? You, you want to personally gain from this? Okay, well, let's give it to you. And and in this place, the one who is suffering from the hottest flame is Pope Nicholas III. And in the, the poem, uh, within a few years, Pope Nicholas expects to be squished farther down into uh, his baptismal when Pope Boniface VIII takes his place, and then even further still years later when Pope Clement V dies and joins them in this place. This this was uh, courageous. I mean, this this was radical for Dante to say things like this in his poem. Of course, Dante's poetry is not sacred scripture at all. It's like watching a Christian movie or reading the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a work of fiction, but with a devotional and theological purpose. And Dante dared to suggest, and this was about two centuries before the Protestant Reformation, he dared to suggest that some of the most respected and the most honored and the most revered Christian figures, like popes, he dared to suggest that some of them were not actually Christians and they would suffer the wrath of God for eternity. In today's passage in Luke that we come to in our study through this gospel, Jesus likewise exercises a flabbergasting audacity in declaring that not everyone in the church of his day was really saved. Many men of God don't even know God. They do not recognize the master of the house of Israel when he stands in front of them. And they will find themselves knocking on the door of his kingdom, but unable to get in. This text today will provide solid assurance to those who recognize Jesus as the master of the house. But it gives a correspondingly severe warning to those who simply want to dabble in spirituality with or without Jesus. There's a warning for you if that describes you. The, 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 the title of, of this sermon is why spirituality is not enough. It is not enough for you or for anyone to be a spiritual person. And we'll see on, on the outline in today's text that this question ought to be very real for us because the doorway is narrow and the elites are threatened and the answer is obvious. Let me pray once again and then we'll start on the text. Father in heaven, please help us now to to see jesus and to hear his words help us to be changed and moved by what you have for us today that we might set our hope in jesus that we might recognize him as the master of the house help us not to be content to follow our culture into uh, these claims that spirituality simply being spiritual is enough to know you but help us to see Jesus and to know him, that through knowing him, we may know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, the question is real. Verses 22 and 23 of Luke chapter 13 is where we begin. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Let me stop there for a moment. Because right here in Luke, Luke begins for us a new section in the travel narrative. Uh, if you've been with us in this series, you've heard that that we're in the midst of a 10-chapter section where Jesus is doing nothing but but traveling toward Jerusalem. But Luke subdivides it for us into four sections, and this now begins the third section. It begins this new section with this reminder in verse 22 that Jesus is on his way to die and secure salvation for the world. He went on his way teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And then there's a big question. This is what Luke does at the beginning of each of these four subsections in in these 10 chapters. The big question that will drive this next section, which lasts for four chapters. And it's the question of verse 23. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, this question is very closely related to another critical question. And this is part of what's coming out of this. There's another critical question for for the context of why Luke is writing this. And that question is, why are the Jewish leaders so antagonistic toward the Christian movement? Are, are, Are they not saved? Who can be saved? Will those who are saved be few? Well, what about all these Jewish people? And those who are adjudicating the trial of the Apostle Paul, they want to know this. They need to know this. Because if, as you claim, Christianity is so closely tied to Judaism, such that both Christianity and Judaism claim allegiance to the God of Abraham and to the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, If it's so closely tied, then why is the Jewish leadership so opposed to this Christian sect? This is a major issue in the defense of Paul at his trial before Caesar, which is also a defense of Christianity. And so Luke must address it. And in these next four chapters, he tackles it head on. Why are the Jewish leaders so opposed to Christianity? Who are those who are really saved from the judgment of God? And will those who are saved be few? Now, our reason for asking this question might be a little different than it was for Luke when he was writing. But the necessity of the question remains. Because I suspect that not many of us today face direct opposition from Orthodox Jews who are out to harm us throwing into question our right to exist as a Christian church and that that's all thrown into question. We don't have that exact same situation for most of us. But we still need to know why our church feels so weird at times. Why are there so many people in the world who claim to be spiritual and who claim to worship God, but they would never join our church? Could it be the case that all roads lead to heaven? Could it be the case that all religions really are worshiping the same God? Do we just need to loosen up and, and, and be, you know, more, more kind, more accepting of all these spiritual people out there and all these spiritual paths? Because if we did, if we would just loosen up, we could be a lot more acceptable to the contemporary priesthood in our culture that preaches tolerance. You know, we could be like Oprah Winfrey. We could get on TV and make a difference on the masses if we'll just accept that spirituality is enough. So this question is real for us. It's very real. Let's look at how Jesus begins to answer the question. First, we see that the doorway is narrow. This is number two in your outline. The doorway is narrow. Continuing on in the text, verses 24 through 30. Jesus answers, and he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me. All you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and from west and from north and from south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. There is a narrow door here and he says that many will seek to enter but they will not be able. It's as though Jesus himself is holding a door open beckoning us to enter. Come on. Come on through. In verse 29, he says, people will come from all four points on the compass and to enter and to eat, to recline at table with him. But in verse 28, Jesus says that many of those listening to him right then, that day, they would weep with fury. That's what gnashing teeth means. You're so angry. You just grit and clench your teeth. You're weeping, but it's a furious weeping because you've been locked out and you see all these other people who get in. Why? Why will this happen? It's because of verse 25. Verse 25, they do not recognize the master of the house of Israel. And once that master has risen and shut the door, they will be outside knocking. And because they do not recognize the master of the house of Israel, therefore he will not recognize them when it comes time to shut that door. Verse 26, we see that it is not even enough to eat and drink with Jesus. It is not enough to hear him teaching in your streets. It's not enough for you to go to a church where you hear the word of Christ. You cannot use the name of Jesus when it suits you, but then live however you please. You cannot hear the voice of God by going on a hike in nature and listening for a still small voice inside your own head. You cannot find God by searching deep within yourself or by being true to yourself. And it will do you no good to commune with your spiritual side to find peace, wholeness, or equilibrium. Friends, if you do these things, you will find yourself walking full speed into a wall because you have bypassed the doorway. And that doorway is narrow. So please do not be deceived, my friends. When Donald Trump claims to be a Christian, but he hands out credit for what happens to nobody but himself, and especially not the Lord Jesus Christ, his professed faith ought to be suspect. His spirituality ought to be questioned. Now, please understand, I am not saying at all whether you should vote for him or not. That's a different issue altogether. I just don't want you to be fooled by his spirituality. When the gatekeepers of society demand that you bow the knee to their version of tolerance and acceptance, You need to understand that, and you've probably seen it, the one thing they will not tolerate is the declaration that Jesus Christ is the master of the house. He is Lord of all, and that his throne is the only one to which we must bow. Suddenly, their tolerance starts to look awfully intolerant. Please, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Now, I am not saying that we ought to be the most condescending or disrespectful people in society. Please, no. Please, no. We ought to be as kind and generous and as winsome as possible so that we can win as many as possible to Christ to come through that narrow doorway. For example, in our, our campus ministry, uh, a number of years ago, I used to serve on campus at another school. I, I, I was never at Penn State. But but at that school, we had an interreligious council, an interfaith council, where, where the advisors like me from all the different religious groups would meet together to talk about spirituality and the spiritual life of the students on campus. And uh, I participated in that joyfully and cheerfully. And we didn't have worship services together because we were very clear. We're not all worshiping the same God. We didn't do that, but when it when it came to the rights of the students and when it came to just the community and events and, you know, health practices or mental health, all these different things, we could pool our resources. We tried to be kind and build friendships and be respectful to all those, uh, the other religions out there, but we can never compromise on the fact that the doorway into the kingdom of God is quite narrow. And all that work that we did to be kind and respectful paid off because the time came at that campus at one one year when an administrator wanted to make a policy for all religious groups that they could not proselytize. They were not allowed to uh, try to convert anybody from one doc, one way of belief or religion to another. And this policy was attempting, they were attempting to put this into practice. And the person who stood up for us, for, for the, the the Christians, for the evangelical Christians, our greatest defender was the female liberal rabbi. She was a liberal Jew. She did not agree with us at all. We were on opposite sides of the spectrum as far as many ethics and politics and doctrine and all kinds of things. But she stood up for us. She went toe-to-toe with the administration to say, these people are evangelicals. They believe that they are on a mission from God to evangelize, and we have to protect their freedom to do that. And that administrator who wanted to make that policy ended up feeling disrespected and resigned and went to another university. So we can we can defend this narrow-door gospel in a way that doesn't make us mean and condescending to other people. And we need to do that. We believe, we never compromise, that Jesus alone is the one holding this door open. And many people who seek God will never actually find him unless they come to recognize that Jesus is the master of God's house. So how do people typically respond to such beliefs? When, when we preach a narrow door gospel, this is the, the message. Can you see why Christianity got so much heat in Luke's day when the Jews thought they could worship a God without Jesus? And for the Romans, their gospel was that Caesar is Lord. What ought we to expect from these elites, from the, the people when they hear this narrow door gospel? Well, let's take a look at verses 31 to 35. We see that the elites are threatened. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Now, there are many, many people in the world who have much to lose from what Jesus teaches. If the door is really narrow, and if he really thinks that losers will get into his kingdom ahead of us, we who have done everything right, we can't let these microaggressions slide. We must do something about it. And in this paragraph, we see three responses from those who feel threatened by Jesus. We see it in this paragraph and we see the same responses today. Response number one is to destroy him, to destroy him. And this was Herod's response, verse 31 they came and said to him get away from here for Herod wants to kill you this is the response let's let's kill him you know if we can discredit this guy or demolish him if we if we can find some way to get rid of him then the pain will go away and we can keep our position now it worked for Herod with respect to John the Baptist Though he was initially reluctant, he was able to get John out of the way. And that pesky thing John kept telling him about, that he had to repent of of his adultery. And so it worked, getting rid of John, so perhaps it might also work with Jesus. Now, people have the same response today when they go on the attack to destroy Jesus. They could be angry atheists who want to just... Destroy Jesus and the memory of him and they want to make him look like he was evil. Or they could be belittling power mongers who, who are in control of society and they don't want to let go of that. And so they have to belittle those who are preaching this narrow door gospel. Or it could be your peers who simply seek to destroy Jesus through mockery, through scorn, through, uh, through abuse or, or, or even in, uh, well indifference that gets to the next response but yeah through the abuse and the mockery and and please understand that the commitment these people have to destroying jesus that requires them to try to destroy you as the representative of jesus as the messenger of jesus in their world so that's response number one is to destroy him response number two is to dismiss him to dismiss him. And this is the Pharisees' response in verse 31. The Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, perhaps Herod really wanted to kill Jesus. But it's also possible that the Pharisees were making this up. Luke doesn't tell us that Herod was trying to kill Jesus. Luke tells us that the Pharisees claimed that Herod wanted to kill Jesus. So it's possible that the Pharisees were making this up just to get rid of Jesus. Maybe they simply wanted Jesus to go away and leave him alone. You see what they want? The beginning of their quote, get away from here. They want him to leave. They want him to let them get back to what they were doing. They At this point, they want to dismiss him, to marginalize him. Now, people today have the same response when they shut down and they don't want to talk about Jesus. They don't want to talk about the kingdom of God or the narrow door. Maybe they don't want to have to think about Jesus. There are lots of people who don't mind at all talking about God, talking about angels, talking about ethics and morality, as long as you don't try to bring Jesus into it. As soon as you use the name jesus that's when it gets truly offensive because people want to dismiss him they want to dismiss him so they try to destroy him they try to dismiss him but the third response is to deconstruct him to deconstruct him this just means redefining him reshaping him to be the jesus that you want him to be rather than the jesus that he said he was and this was the response of jerusalem That we see in verses 34 and 35. This is the city that kills prophets and stones messengers. And Jesus says in verse 35, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think this most likely means that you will not recognize who I am until you are able to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's quoting from Psalm 118, that line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's, he's referring to Psalm 118, which is a poem all about the king of Israel who's been rejected by the nations, but he goes out, he defeats them in battle, and then he returns home in triumph while the people declare his return home in the name of the Lord. And he's blessed because of that but you see the people of jerusalem in Jesus' day they will not see him for who he is as that returning triumphant king who's come home to visit them now a few of them will will speak these precise words on palm sunday at his triumphal entry as we call it his so-called triumphal entry uh but 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 they'll speak these words without recognizing what's happening without recognizing him as the returning king the one who has returned home to inspect his house and his vineyard the vineyard of israel to see if there's any fruit as we saw earlier in chapter 13 instead they don't see him as that that king that master of the house instead they deconstruct him to make him the sort of messiah they wish him to be we'll speak these words as long as he'll come and Defeat Rome for us, or he'll come and make us feel good. He'll come and no. By no means will he. Can he die or be put on trial? You see, this deconstructing of Jesus. This is what people do when they try to make Jesus out to be something other than what he said he was. And so, people today, they want to. They do this with Jesus all the time. They they want to treat Jesus as though he's a good guy. He's a mystical sage. He's he's sort of a cross between a peace-seeking hippie and Mahatma Gandhi. You know, he, he's a lover of nature and he's a lover of humanity. There are other people who deconstruct him to, to, to turn him maybe even into a corrupt politician or a small-minded fool. You see, people will do anything but recognize him as the master of the house, the returning triumphant king who comes in the name of the lord and in verses 32 and 33 we see jesus's own self identity he is the one who is single minded about his business he says i must go on my way today and tomorrow verse 33 and the day following it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from jerusalem so, verse 32, I'm casting out demons, I'm performing cures, and the third day I finish my course. He is single-minded about going to Jerusalem so he can die for the sin of the world, and then he will be raised on the third day to finish his course. He will finish his course of bringing salvation to the world. That's his identity. You can't deconstruct that. So, why is spirituality not enough enough? The answer ought to be pretty obvious to you by now because it has everything to do with recognizing Jesus as the master of God's house and not being threatened by that identity of his. So the answer is obvious. Look at chapter 14 as we continue to the next paragraph. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully and behold, there was a, there was a man excuse me, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, "Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not?" But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, "Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out?" And they could not reply to these things. So here we are in verse 1, enjoying another meal on another Sabbath. He happens to be in a Pharisee's house, in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. This guy's one of the elites, one of the elite of the elites. And it's on another Sabbath. He's been been doing this a lot in Luke's gospel. Jesus does these all these things constantly, eating meals, doing stuff on the Sabbath. And here we have another ill person in need of healing. It's a man with dropsy. Dropsy is a severe swelling uh, due to excess water that's in one part of the body, often the lower legs or the feet. Now this particular healing of this man with dropsy is somewhat unique in Luke's gospel because unlike all the other healing stories that Luke tells in this one, The the person who is sick, the man with dropsy, he's not a major character in the story. He's really not much more than a prop for the scene. And I'm not speaking about his value as a human being. I'm just talking about Luke's use of him in the narrative. He's almost a prop in the scene. Uh, The whole point of this scene is simply for Jesus to do this on the Sabbath so that he can ask a few obvious questions in verses 3 and 5. That's where Luke is going with his climax. Verse three, the question is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now the answer should be obvious. Of course it's lawful to do that. And verse five, he asks another question. How many of you will immediately pull out a fallen son or ox out of a well on the Sabbath? And again, the answer is obvious. Every one of us would do that. But look at Luke's description. Verse 4, they remained silent. And in verse 6, they could not reply to these things. Now, why could they not reply? Was it because they didn't know the answer? No, that's not why. The answers were obvious to everybody. The reason they could not reply was because their reply would not condemn Jesus, but it would condemn themselves. You see, people won't answer, they won't bother to answer the obvious questions if their goal is to satisfy themselves or to improve themselves. We see this today. Spirituality is cool. It's really cool to be a spiritual person if your spirituality is a means to self-help or self-esteem. But if you speak of sin and salvation, if you speak of repentance and resurrection, those things are going to make me feel bad. That's not cool. And therefore, we avoid the obvious answers to our questions, which is who's going to pay for your sin? Somebody has to. So friends, how can we find God? How can we find God? There is a door wide open for you. It is standing open to anyone of any age, of any race, of any class, anyone of any status. You can have any background. This door is wide open for those with any secret sins or overwhelming temptations that you struggle with. All you have to do is walk through this door? And how do you walk through this door? All you have to do is recognize that Jesus is the master of God's house. The answer is obvious. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's Jesus. He's holding that door open. And very soon, he will shut that door forever. But if you walk through it, if you would only trust in Jesus, then your seat at his table is assured and you can eat and drink with him forever and with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and with all the prophets. Let me give three closing applications for the Christian and two applications for the non-Christian. First, if you're a Christian, if you have already recognized Jesus as the master of the house, if you bow the knee to him daily and you are seeking to walk with him, first, be assured. Be assured. Because Jesus, the master of the house, assures you that those who bow the knee to him will feast with him. Even if you have to die with him, you will be raised with him. Those who bow the knee to Jesus will feast with him. So first, be assured. There is incredible assurance for you in this passage. Second, be warned. Be warned. The spiritual elites out there, they will not feast with Jesus. And so be warned and don't be surprised by that. Be ready for that. Be warned. And third, Be prepared. Be prepared because those spiritual elites who will not feast with Jesus, the proponents of tolerance in our day, they will not tolerate those who strive to enter through the narrow door. And so be prepared because if they sought to destroy Jesus and dismiss Jesus and deconstruct Jesus, they will do the same to you who follow Jesus and now represent him. So Christian, please be assured by this passage and be warned and be prepared. Now, if you are are not a Christian, if you're visiting with us, you're, you're visiting with a friend and you've joined us, or you've heard about this church, or you're ex- still exploring Jesus and you're not sure what you think, or, or maybe you're growing up in this church, maybe you're a young person who hasn't yet professed faith, who hasn't yet decided to follow Jesus and you haven't told people about that. I have two applications for you. First, please beware. Beware. This passage has great warning to you. And especially, beware lest your search for spirituality become the very thing that prevents you from joining in the divine feast. You can go looking for God and miss him. You can strive to enter his kingdom, but not find it. And it is your seeking, your spirituality, that will prevent you from getting in if it does not lead you to Jesus as the master of the house. So first, beware. And second, please, be welcomed. Be welcomed. Because Jesus wants To gather you under his wings, just as he spoke of Jerusalem in verses 34 and 35. He wants to gather you under his wings. He is not trying to keep you out. He's holding the door open. He's getting your attention. He's flagging the way. Please be welcomed. Enter through the narrow door. Please be willing to be gathered under Jesus' wings so he can care for you and provide for you and give you an inheritance and a feast that will never fade away so you can be with God through him forever. Please pray with me. Our father in heaven, we are so grateful to you that you did not leave us in our sin to die and be destroyed, but you have opened a door, and you are beckoning us to walk through it. Father, we proclaim that Jesus Christ is the master of the house. He is the one that you have appointed to reign over all nations, the one who returned home to inspect Jerusalem to see if there would be any fruit there, and he will come back come back again one day to inspect this world and see what we have done with And so we bow the knee to Jesus. He is our only hope. Lord, please help us to be assured that as we bow the knee, we will feast with Jesus. May we be prepared for the high priesthood of intolerance out there, the spiritual elites who will attack us for this and dismiss us. And Lord, please help my friends out there to beware lest their search for spirituality become the very thing that prevents them from walking through the door of Jesus. Help us, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.